We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Today my guest is Stuart Cutchins. I met Stuart, geez, I can't remember how many years ago, and I think it was through email because he responded to some uh, email that I'd sent out about a website that I was running. And he had some sort of response, something like, good luck, if you need to know anything about failure, you can ask me, I've got plenty of experience. I thought, wow, here's an interesting guy to talk to. Stuart is a longtime acupuncturist here in the United States. He's a Zen priest. He's worked with acupuncture schools. He currently has a practice out in Marin County. And today we're going to get together, talk a little bit about mindfulness, cozying up to that uncomfortable unknown feeling, and uh, talking a little bit about why we're all such miserable failures at meditation. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. It's really nice of you to invite me. And uh, on the subject of uh, miserable failure, uh, in terms of meditation, I, I think I think you've got the right person here. <laughs> um, is that because you've never meditated and you can't do it, or is that because you've been doing it for years and you still can't do it? I've been practicing meditation for decades, and I, as far as I can tell, nobody can do it. Okay, so... I want to get a little bit into that because I've got a number of patients who have been interested in meditation, or sometimes I'll think they should be interested in meditation. I'll mention it to them. And they'll sit down and attempt to do it, and they come back and they go, you know what, I just can't do it. Right. I'm a failure. And so you've been doing failing for decades. Why is this stuff so damn hard? <laughs> Oh, well, there, uh, there, are a few, there are a few reasons why it's so hard. Um, and 
one of the reasons that it's so hard is uh, because of expectation. Uh, we, uh, we enter into the process with <clears throat> myriad expectations, just, like, just as we enter into every process and every activity with myriad expectations. We think a lot about it, and we think that we know a lot about it, or we think we're going to get something out of it, or something like that. And actually, all of that is misplaced. It's misplaced pretty generally about most of the world, and it's most especially misplaced about meditation, <clears throat> which should be understood as a, an aspect of spiritual practice. And if we have some specific expectations of spiritual practice, we are doing more or less the equivalent of uh, <clears throat> driving our car 60 miles an hour into a brick wall. Just whatever, whatever it was that we expected to get out of that, that's not what's going to happen because uh, spiritual practice isn't like that. I remember a conversation that I had some years ago. I was uh, a personal attendant for the, uh, the about-to-become abbess of uh, San Francisco Zen Center. We were down at, in a mountain monastery practice place, and, and a couple of weeks later, she, was about, she would be installed as, uh, as the abbot of, uh, of Zen Center. And uh, she told me of, a, of an experience that she had fairly earlier in her career uh, where she was studying with her teacher, Suzuki Roshi. And at that time, he was teaching, uh, he was teaching a kind of mindfulness of breathing technique that, that involved counting the breath. Which is a very simple, I mean, that's a very simple... Very Isn't simple. That, like what most people start with. That, that's what many people start with. It's like meditation 101. Actually, not a bad starting point mm. uh, for for practicing meditation, and and she went to see him for a personal interview one day, and she said, "You know, I th I think I'm getting good at this. I've been I was counting my breath, and I got up to three hundred, which in itself is funny, but we'll let we'll let the humor of that go. Uh, I, I I counted you know up to three hundred, and she said the Suzuki Roshi who is actually a very kind, very sweet person almost all the time and always encouraged her and always spoke very kindly to her because she had some self-esteem issues. He was always very encouraging. At that point, his face transformed completely and he leaned across to her and put his face in her face and said, you don't do meditation. Meditation does meditation. Do you understand? Do you understand? Ah. And she said, of course she said yes, but of course she didn't understand. Of course she but had no idea what he meant. She had no idea what he meant, but it, it was kind of an important moment for her. And I think a big illustration about the trouble that we get into uh, when we undertake to do meditation, when we undertake to do mindfulness, which is that uh, that we think that that's something that we're going to do. And that's kind of the right at the nub of the problem is that we enter into meditation like we enter into pretty much everything else uh, with the thought that we're going to do something. We're going to make something happen. We're going to take control of this situation. We're going to take control of our minds. We're going to take control of spirit. 
you know, we have that thing, and and that's that's exactly the nub of the problem. Uh, when when we sit for a while and we manage to quiet down enough, one of the first things we notice is how much not in control we are of anything, and most especially not of our minds. And this is what discourages a lot of people. They say, oh, you know, I, I just, my mind was just going out of control. I'm not in control here. I failed. I can't meditate. I don't know how to meditate. Which actually is a beautiful beginning, because to actually recognize that the mind is a complete mess, that's really different than usual everyday waking reality, which is, I got this shit under control. I don't know if it's a, I, that I would characterize it as a mess, but I would characterize it as a riot. So, <laughs> so for me, that's kind of a starting point is, is that mind, mind is a riot. And to walk into the middle of a riot and to think that, that I'm, going to, I'm going to settle the waters, uh, I can tell, you know, when I put it that way, I can tell, okay, there's something off here. Also, going back to Suzuki Roshi, since uh, since I started by talking about him, and and he spoke very beautifully to just this issue. Somebody asked, somebody said to him in uh, in a lecture, a question and answer period in the lecture. Uh, I just I I can't get my mind under control. Just every time I sit down, I just you know my mind is just all over the place. And he he responded, we uh, we tame our mind like we tame a wild horse. We put it in a big field and watch it. Ah. So that I think, you know, that I think is, is kind of, <laughs> is, is kind of the, uh, uh, a better beginning point than I'm going to get my mind under control. Yeah. Well, this is so often the way that meditation is sold to us, right? You look at mm -hmm. the media and it's, oh, the 30-day meditation challenge, get your life under control, meditate your way into prosperity. I mean, there's all these goals right. that go with it. But most especially, I think, the, the way it's sold, we're going to find a little peace and contentment for once. Mm -hmm. And often it's anything but. Right, it's a riot. It is, yeah, it is. Well, you know, when you describe it that way, and I, and I like that description better than a mess. A mess is, is a little pejorative, and um, to look at it as a riot, because a riot is full of all kinds of different influences, all kinds of different characters, just kind of running amok. Right. And that is the way it is sometimes, sitting there on the cushion. It's like, where does all this stuff come from? And riot is also a word that's used to indicate something that's very funny. <laughs> and, 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 and that's another aspect of this. Yeah. If, it, if it weren't so darn serious, it would be really funny. <laughs> and actually, the fact that it is so serious is in itself really funny. So almost all of us, you know, and, and, and um, I, I don't, I don't want to sound... Uh, too forbidding about this. I, I think almost everybody that I have ever met or talked to, including all of the people I carry around inside my head, uh, start this kind of practice, start almost any kind of practice uh, with some discussion with oneself about what one is going to get out of it. This is what I'm going to get out of it. This is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm going to get out of it. And and because of the way we're set up, 
kind of, kind of there's no other way to get ourselves to enter into anything without describing the benefits that will be had. Mm-hmm. Even, even if the, the pain-pleasure ratio is very bad by focusing on the, on the uh, pleasurable, p- possible pleasurable outcomes, we can get ourselves to do all kinds of weird, nasty things, you know. Uh, so uh, something as, uh, something as, uh, as opaque as uh, entering into a new spiritual practice we almost have to believe that there's going to be something in it for us that we will be getting something and um and that's where we start from for most for most people who actually i think practice seriously the story about what we're going to get is part of a story that we tell ourselves to sort of get ourselves to go along almost all of us who begin practicing actually have seen something important that we can't quite explain or can't quite describe, but something has come across. We've already recognized the, uh, the light in the middle of uh, all of the darkness of the world. We've seen it somehow. Usually we can't articulate it. We can't talk about it. We don't even know how to think about it. We don't even know how to acknowledge it, but something has come across to us. But in order to enter the discipline of practice, of sitting down and being quiet, you know, sit down and shut up is not an easy thing to do. It's the name of, you know, it's the name of a book. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a book on Dogen. Well, uh, the uh, the late husband of Blanche Hartman, about whom I was speaking uh, earlier, Lou Hartman, was famous for doing meditation instruction at Zen Center. And, you know, all of these new people would come in, you know, dewy-eyed on Sunday, and he would say to them, well, the basic thing is sit down and shut up. <laughs> he could go on from there. He wasn't really a curmudgeon, but... But he was enough of a curmudgeon to start that way. Well, sometimes it does seem like dog training, right? Sit, stay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It does. And 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 that is that is it. Sit sit down and stay put and be quiet because when we're quiet, then we get to hear the sounds of the riot. That riot is going on all the time. People often going back to what you were talking about before, people often feel that they have failed at meditation because as soon as they start to meditate, they feel like their minds go nuts. Their minds just start racing all over the place and they, all these crazy things happen and they're, they're getting the opposite result of what they're looking for. Actually, they're setting their minds on fire. And, and, uh, and really, truly, what's happening is that they're just tuning into the riot. That's what minds do. That's what minds do from, from morning to night and through the night and starting up the next morning. Uh, that kind of the kind of uh, uh, all but incohate riot of the mind is what we call dreams. You know, it's just uh, dreaming is the mind doing its remarkably mysterious running all over creation and back again, but without any uh, or without very much immediate input from the immediate situation that we're in. That is, without paying attention, without having to pay attention to our immediate surroundings. Meditation is kind of like 
entering into a state where our minds are permitted to do whatever our minds are going to do, but we're paying attention. We're paying attention to our bodies. We're paying attention to our breath. We're paying attention to our thinking. We're paying attention to our feeling. We're paying attention to the room temperature. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we get to pay attention to all of that. So the, the business of mindfulness is almost, like, is almost like the opening of the door on meditation. There are many ways to open the door on meditation, but that's one of it, one of the ways, being mindful, being mindful of body, speech, and mind, learning to, learning to see what our minds are doing, not controlling our minds, controlling our minds in the sense of putting it in a large field and watching it, that kind of control. So it's the, it's the control of letting it go. The control of being present with it. Mm. And uh, sometimes we see that our minds are moving into very unwholesome states. And if we notice that that's happening, then we can say, oh, you know, that looks like an unwholesome direction for mind to go in. I wonder if we have alternatives here. <laughs> but to think that we can control our minds out of going into unwholesome states is a big mistake because because our uh, cognitive thinking and our judgment and moral opinions really are just a very small dog on a, a very small tail on a very big dog. Well, and as we were alluding to earlier, laughingly, as I recall, about failure, it seems when we have ideas about things, and we all got ideas about things, and I don't know about you and I don't know about our listeners, but I find that my ideas about things are more often than not kind of wrong, sometimes extremely wrong. It's just not what I thought it would be, right? Whether it's a relationship or a business or how I'm dealing with a patient in clinic or what I'm going to think about eating dinner tonight. What I think about and what I experience usually don't have a whole lot to do with each other. Yeah. I think that's so. I think that we uh, generally think that we know what's going on. We have explanations for everything and uh, explanations and predictions, ideas and judgments about everything. And what we generally don't realize <clears throat> is that our ideas and judgments and expect expectations and stories about things are uh, made up. We're inventing them. <laughs> and uh, and we have portions of our brain that are dedicated to uh, to making up the explanation. Uh, we have why, why we have mental it? functions I, that are. A second, I I, I got to interrupt here because I'm just sure, I don't want to lose this question. I can't stop you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a mind. You're almost like a mind. <laughs> why is it so dang important to have an explanation? Uh, it's, it is very important to have an explanation be, for two reasons. One is that we have a program to have an explanation. As I said, part of our brain is hardwired to provide an, a narrative explanation for everything that happens in our lives. We're just, that's, that's its job. So we're story generating machines. That's the job of our brain. Also, 
we have to realize that the lack of a narrative explanation, the lack of a story, is chaos. If we don't have a story, then we don't know what things are. And naming, having the story, having the explanation, having the name for it is is how is the is one of the first steps in taking control of the situation. There's a wonderful there's a, a wonderful line in a great song by uh, by the blues genius, country blues genius, Blind Lemon Jefferson, about the Spanish influenza. And he talks in this song, in this song, about how people were dying on the land and the sea, and the doctors didn't know what was going on, and they didn't know what to do, and they all got together, and they called it the Spanish Influ. And that's kind of the end of that verse. And when I heard that, I was actually, <laughs> I heard that one of the times I heard it was I had put a tape into my car. I was on my way to teach my first course ever that I ever taught on Shang Han Lun. And I was in my car and I was driving to the class and, and I was listening to one of my favorite tapes. And I heard that for the first time, really heard it, mm. which is that's how we take control. We don't know what to do, so the first thing we do is we give it a name. Yes, and this is this is a uh, this is a theme that actually runs through, you know, through folklore, and it runs through spiritual, uh, spiritist practices and so forth. The the business of naming things, of taking control of things by giving it a name. I remember reading somewhere that uh, if you are confronted by some kind of monster in a dream or in your life, uh, that the first thing to do is to ask for its name. Yeah, you know, I, I remember reading stories, you know, as a kid and as a young adult, and often in that magical realm, the way you tame the beast, the demon, the whatever, you know its name. If you know its name, then you can, then you've got power over it. Right. And the name, the name is kind of a stand-in for the story. That's the beginning of the story. Now we know what we're dealing with. We're dealing with ABC. Uh, so it's very important to us to keep making up the story, keep making up the explanation, because that's how we feel in control. That's how we feel not helpless. That's how we feel not confused. That's how we feel not frightened. Well, it also it's, it appears to help with a whole bunch of things like, you know, building automobiles, cooking food, or practicing medicine for that matter. Yeah, the, uh, the story making and story building portion of our of our brains and mind are extremely useful it's very practical we have to appreciate the whole thing about uh, about conventional thinking and conventional wisdom and having names for things and so forth which is that it is it's very practical that's how we practically get things done our problems arise when we start to believe in the intrinsic reality of our stories, when we think that our stories sum up the truth of things. And really what our stories do is kind of reduce the whole, the wholeness of things to something small enough to kind of get a handle on it and to, in some measure, exert enough control over it to get through the situation. 
And it, that's not a bad thing. But being fooled by what it is that our stories represent, that, that's how we get into a lot of trouble. That's how we wind up sort of wondering what's go, what is going on in my life? Why does my life feel like a lie? It feels like a lie because, you know, often because uh, our story is mistaken for being more than a story. Or we mistaken it for reality in life itself. We mistake it for the ultimate reality. Mistake it for truth. I have a little story to tell about about this about the story making function. A story and about a story. We have a, I have a story about stories, and uh, this story is a story about me sitting uh, in a zendo in a meditation hall in a monastery in the mountains in a deep valley in the high mountains and. Uh, I'd been there long enough to kind of know the people that I was sitting with and have opinions and judgments about various people and so forth. And uh, I was, uh, I actually had some kind of influential position in the monastery at that time. So I was sitting facing the back door and I had some small responsibility for what might or might not happen in the uh, in the meditation hall and in the community, and I heard a sound on uh, on the walkway around the meditation hall. You know, this was all wood, wooden building, wooden walkways, everything. I heard a sound, and I heard another sound, and it was just like mm, maybe a half a second's worth of noise. And I immediately had a story about what that noise was. I knew that it was the footfall of a certain particular person who didn't know how to act and he was about to do something that was inappropriate and I was I was already fairly outraged by it and then and it was all clear it just came up immediately I just had the story I knew I could I could tell that it was real and then a moment later there was another sound which wasn't concordant with the story and immediately my story changed Immediately, I had a different story, and it was, I was kind of embarrassed by the old story, but there it was, I had had, it was like that, and I noticed it. <laughs> I think that this is one of the benefits of doing meditation practice, is because not only was I listening <laughs> to the sounds around me and, uh, you know, sort of paying attention to all of the people in the room, but my... I was quiet enough and attentive enough to see what my mind did. Although what my mind did, I didn't realize in the first instant that it was all the product of my mind. A moment later, there was enough new information that I could look back on it. In you know, this is like within one second, I could look back on it and see, oh, look what I just did. Yeah, and, and of course, this is the stuff that happens at stoplights, right? Or, yes. you know, maybe someone, oh, they cut you, you know, they cut me off. How dare them? Or, you know, your spouse gives you a look, the look. The look. <laughs> you call it, it's not a look, it's the look, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or the phone rings at a certain time and it's like, oh yeah, it's so-and-so. Yeah, right. And <laughs> it, you know, and sometimes it is, right? I mean, sometimes we're intuitive and it's like, oh, yeah, it is just exactly like that. But a lot of times the story runs and, we're, and I find myself living in that story until at some point I, I realize, 
uh, actually, no, something completely different is happening here. Yeah, in some respects, being intuitive uh, is helpful in <laughs> in uh, keeping track of, of what's about to happen or what is happening, but it doesn't help to realize the to realize the role of imagination in our thinking process. As a matter of fact, it's uh, maybe counterproductive in that because uh, our stories have practical value. If we're highly intuitive, our stories have practical value a little too often and we lose track of paying attention to, you know, I just made up that story. Mm. And, we're, and we're, we're enabled to think that, oh no, I was just tuning into reality. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to shift this just a little bit because it still is connected to the issue of story here. Um, but I want to move it a little bit into medicine and practice because this is something that I see all the time in my clinical practice. I suspect you run into it. People come in and sometimes, you know, with very serious physical issues or very serious other kinds of issues. And often there's a complete story that goes with the issue. And often an opinion about it should be, or, or, you know, often shouldn't be a certain way. And on one hand, I find it really helpful to be able to connect with people and, you know, find out what is, you know, how do they see the world? How's it, you know, how are things affecting them in such a way that maybe I will be able to be of help to them in the role that I play as an acupuncturist? And so there's this element of story that I think is important to kind of unfold and, and, and just kind of get a sense of the texture of it. And at the same time, what's, I, I've got a question here. Maybe I just have a statement here. I think the statement is, when I watch people's stories about what is happening to them in their health and well-being change, often lots of other things change too in the relationship that they have in their life. Sometimes the physical ailments don't change at all. But the story about the physical ailment changes, and that actually changes a lot. Yes, I, th I think that's so. And uh, th it, it is a little bit shifted topic, but that's okay, Michael. You can change the subject to that. I'd love to talk to you about that for, for a moment uh, anyway, which is the difference, uh, which is the issue of, of healing. What is healing? And the distinction between treatment and healing healing as as you know is uh, etymologically is uh, based on whole on the word whole and the concept of wholeness of being whole and uh, what what we can offer people usually is some kind of help which may in some measure ameliorate their pain or their suffering or uh, help in aiding them in re-rationalizing their physiological processes. And that's very important to do. Uh, that's a very important kind of work to do. But that's not the same thing as healing. Healing is something that we can't do, that our clients and patients have to do for themselves. That is to say, they have to become whole. They have to become whole with their lives. And uh, very often, our stories are uh, stories that prevent us from, uh, that, are, that are efforts at being whole, but they're counterproductive efforts. And it's very helpful when people can change their stories 
to a story such that whatever the reality of their situation is, they can feel whole with that. And that's that's the maximum, I think. That's the maximum. And if we can help people do that, that's the maximum benefit. And I think that's what you were talking about when you when we started, when you were saying, well, sometimes I try to interest my uh, patients in meditation because what you're trying to do is, uh, I think, is trying to help them find a way to open their thinking, open their minds in a way that will permit them to shift their stories and have a more a more uh, wholesome, there's that same word again, a more wholesome story so that they can be whole with their lives. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. Yeah, sometimes it's, it's not so much about getting rid of this story as it is bringing out aspects of the story that aren't being looked at or haven't been noticed or haven't been given a chance to come out. It's often a bigger story than the one that we're telling ourselves. A long time ago, really a long time ago, I was in a group practice, and one of the people in, in the practice was somebody whom you met recently, Peter Ekman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Peter is, is a wonderful practitioner and really smart man. So uh, in this group practice, at some point, I became principally responsible for the care of one of our patients. And every, you know, he came in several weeks in a row. And each time he came in, I would ask him how he was doing. And each time he would say, oh, about the same. And after about five times when he came in and said, it's about the same, nothing is changing, I went back to page one of the intake form Mm. and I started reading his symptom index to him. How's your left ankle? Oh, 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 that's not bothering me now. How's your right shoulder? Uh, That doesn't bother me anymore. How's your indigestion? I I haven't been... You know, I kind of went through it, and almost everything on his symptom index from his intake form had changed for the better. (laughs) Uh, uh, Some of it was gone. Some of it was improved. Almost all of it was changed. And yet each week, and I said to him, you know, from you say that nothing has changed, but it seems to me, going over this in detail, that it's actually changed a lot. And he said something and so forth and left. And, and after that, I went to Peter Ekman and I said, uh, Peter, this just happened. I, 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 I don't get it. And Peter said, <laughs> very wisely, I've never forgotten it, or on good days, I've never forgotten it. <laughs> uh, yes, a lot of his symptoms changed, but he didn't change how he felt inside. And that's the most important thing. Oh, wow. Now that just hits me like a ton of bricks. This is, I mean, this is something I've noticed for myself in my practice, that I'll hear the same thing. How, how are yeah. things? I'll ask people, and they'll say, eh, about the same, which I've taken to mean one of two things. 
nothing has changed and they're being nice. Or a lot has changed and for whatever reason they haven't really noticed until I go over and ask them the symptom index like you did. And the story that I've made up about that is unless something is really in our face and dogging us, we're probably not paying attention to it. But this this thing that you just shared with us that, that Peter Ekman said, that we haven't changed sort of who we are fundamentally on the inside in a certain way, that that's like the missing mortar in the bricks that I've been looking for with this issue. Yeah. So what hadn't changed was that he was he was still unhappy. Yeah. And and he never came back. That was that was the other element in this. He didn't come back again. And that in some ways my going over his uh, symptom index from his intake form, I've come to feel was maybe a form of unkindness. You know, in a way, there was some there was some unkindness. I've done that with other people at other times, and it's worked out well. And, and the issue was, well, if you know, they felt kind of the same, and they just weren't noticing what wasn't bothering them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when it doesn't hurt anymore, it's hard to remember that it ever hurt. Sure, I think that's really natural. Yeah, it is natural, and that happens a lot. But this th- this case was so dramatic that I should have been alerted. I should, I could have. But um, now, after that experience, I'm more alerted to what does it mean when somebody says, I'm not doing any better, when it seems that they might very well be doing better in some ways. It's what's important to them is not better. And that never made it to the symptom list, I suspect. Yeah, right. He didn't come in and say, I am terribly unhappy. <laughs> he didn't say that. And actually, the more, the more disturbed people are, this is not an invariable rule, but it is often the case that the more disturbed people are, the more likely they are to dis- describe their discomfort in somatic terms. And the more unlikely they are to tell you about how they're feeling. They have to be a certain amount self-possessed in order to be able to tell you about how they feel inside, about how they're not happy, or about how they're struggling. I'm just letting that sink in here for a moment because it just rings true to me. I don't have any examples, but it just... It just rings true in my clinical experience as well. Yeah. So we've gone afield a little bit, but I I think that this was a very important topic. I find often that sharing Peter's wisdom is an important topic. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing that I had in mind to say, and I kind of, if it's okay, is it okay to, to move back? Yeah, go ahead. The previous discussion. Absolutely. And, and, and re-enter through a side door, which is that... Uh, the side door that you were guarding at that, at that monastery that time? <laughs> yes, that's the side door, the very one. This is, this is a door on the, you know, to the topic of mindfulness as meditation, and which is not wrong. You know, that's not a wrong thing uh, to think or to say. But it's, again, it's partial. The 
whole field of what meditation might be is a much bigger field than simply what we would describe as mindfulness. And one of the problems that we sometimes get into with, uh, with equating mindfulness with meditation is that mindfulness usually comes in the form of a set of techniques. For example, mindfulness of breath in the Buddhist sutra on mindfulness of breathing, there, is, uh, there are 17 aspects to mindfulness of breathing and so 17 exercises that you can do to rehearse mindfulness of breathing and if uh, one could do this and spend a fair amount of time on it and become fairly expert at the practice of mindfulness of breathing but to imagine that this would exhaust the realm of, of meditation or would in itself achieve the function of meditation would be a very s- sad and serious mistake to uh, to go back once more to to uh, one of the uh, one of the original people of this conversation my uh, spiritual grandfather suzuki roshi was for a while not for a really long time but was for a while telling his students to meditate on uh, on their breathing and to count their breaths and they were counting their breaths. And the story that I told you about uh, Blanche Hartman was a story about one of the things that happened in it. But at some point, at some point, it became obvious to Suzuki Roshi that uh, his students were taking, counting their breath as a technique much too seriously and making it into a technique. And at some point, he said to them, this is not an exact quote, but <laughs> but it'll have to do. Uh, he said to them something to the uh, point of, when I tell you to count your breath, I don't care very much what the number is. Counting your breath means right now. Right now. Right now. Mm. Right now. So this is a you know this is a very important teaching I think on the practice of mindfulness of breathing which is one of the keystones of the practice of mind you know mindfulness meditation which is a very important form of practice meditation practice and often is a gateway into bringing ourselves fully into right now where we are able to conduct the very important business of meditation, which is to fully inhabit the reality of this precious, immediate present of our lives, which is, in some sense, all of the life we will ever have. We can think in terms of past and future, We can think of the present being the gateway between past and future. We can think of the the past as having built up to the present and the future as emanating from the present. But all of our life will never be anything more than, we will never have anything more than right now. The creation of the sense of continuity between past, present, and future is part of the uh, practical adaptation 
to the circumstance of being human beings and having human business to conduct. But it has very little to do with the reality of the universe that we live in, which appears and unfolds moment by moment and is never any more or less than the whole of the immediate present. For me, having a moment to listen, drop into that sense of this moment, uh, it, I mean, it leaves me oddly, comfortably, without a push toward a question, not even necessarily a push toward, uh, you know, the next sentence in the conversation. You know, in a podcast, that may or may not be a good thing. Um, these things are supposed to kind of tick along. <laughs> right. right, everybody's changed the channel by now. <laughs> But certainly in the moments of our lives, and I'll just speak for myself, I suspect other people have had similar experiences that there are moments where we just drop into them and they're, and they're timeless and they're boundless. And what's in the present is just what's in the present. And there needs to be nothing else here. All right? Yes. I would dare say being the discontented person that I generally am, and, and I've actually used my discontentment to fuel me throughout much of my life. But dropping into these moments, like I just did here as you were describing this, there's no discontentment there whatsoever. What is there to be con- discontented with? Well, now there's a question to take into meditation, huh? Yes, <laughs> right, right. Discontent and the feeling of being discontented was uh, essentially, is essentially a, a different and perhaps more literal translation of uh, what, what the Buddha described as suffering. I've heard that. You know, what's generally translated as suffering. So the nature of suffering is the uh, something wrongness. It isn't that there is that there is something wrong. It's the experience of our lives as something wrong here and and carrying forward the, the, the something wrongness is the condition of suffering moment by moment by moment reawakening, re re enlivening something wrong. So this this makes me think of that patient that you were telling us about who had most of his physical ailments shift, and yet that sense of, oh, just not happy, oh, not life just isn't right, that kept being brought forward moment to moment. He was suffering. He was suffering. Yeah, and one sore knee, one painful shoulder, more or less, you know, one bout of diarrhea, more or less, wasn't going to change that. What does change? Does anything change it? Well... Um, <laughs> one depends on what you mean by change it. You know, nothing, there is no thing that changes uh, the human condition. What we're, what we're talking about, of course, is the human condition. And there isn't a thing that changes that. What, uh, really? I see all kinds of stuff on TV that promises that I will be changed if I buy this or do that or study this or... Well, Michael, that's where you have an advantage over me. I probably should go out and get a TV. 
I would probably be much more optimistic <laughs> if I had television. <laughs> and, uh, and I would think that, that I could buy something or get something or do something. Uh, I could drink a fizzy drink that had uh, um, high fructose corn syrup in it and things would go better. Uh, but I, I just, I, I don't have it. I don't, uh, I'm just out of touch with, uh, with that f- aspect of reality. Yeah. So what I keep trying to do in my life and uh, in my practice is to settle in to the way things are and to pay attention to what I think and what I feel and what my opinions are, what my judgments are, what my emotions are, what my sensations are, and, uh, and what the details of my immediate experience are. And when we are fully immersed, when I'm fully immersed in all of the details of my present experience, it isn't, it isn't that everything is all different. It isn't that the world has changed, but... Uh, if I'm really tuned in in that way, isn't that kind of what we mean by being whole with things? Yeah, I, um, well, that has been my experience as well. The, the funny, curious paradox for me in this is this meditative or mindfulness practice, which, you know, I'm a failure at, you're a failure at, right? Anyone who sits down recognizes that there's a, this riot going on. And yet, this funny, kooky practice of sitting down to just how kooky it is inside, of, you know, between our ears, every now and then. And sometimes it'll actually happen on the meditation cushion, which is a huge surprise to me. <laughs> the scene of so much suffering. <laughs> yeah, the scene of so much suffering. <laughs> But what's really curious to me is that it shows up in these odd places in my life, and it will come out of the blue. It's like the sun coming out from behind a cloud. I could be driving down the road. Someone does something that I'm going to call idiotic, right? Except I realize that maybe it's not idiotic. They just did something that scared me, right? So all of a sudden, I'm not calling it idiotic. They did something that was dangerous. And it frightened me. And I recognize, ooh, I got really scared there. And then the next thing that happens is I'm really pissed off. Right. But I skipped over the how scared I was for a moment and went right, right to that bastard, what's he doing? Right. And, and by skipping over that, it's much easier to uh, blame him. Oh, much easier to blame him. But the thing is, when... I stick with that I'm scared. Actually, it's okay to be scared. I mean, I may not, you know, may not be a, a, a feeling that I seek out because I find it pleasurable. But I'd rather know that I was scared than to not know that I was scared. And it, and it actually creates some of that space that we were talking about. Maybe right. there's anger in there as well, but the anger, I'm not so constrained by it. There's a wider field for it. There's, you know, because now there's ang- there's being frightened, and there's being anger, and there's a moment of relief that nobody was hurt, right? Yep. And then maybe I started to get curious as well. Why are they driving that way? Huh? Maybe maybe there's something beyond that they weren't paying attention. Maybe there's something they've got to get to. It's important. 
Um, right. Or maybe they were just texting. I don't know. And, it, and in some ways it doesn't matter because it's nice to know that I was scared. Life is a little fuller knowing that there's room for that. It's a funny thing. Right. And, and also uh, one aspect of it that I started to point out to, started to talk over you to point out to, and I apologize for that, which is that, <clears throat> that when we're paying attention to uh, how we think and how we feel, how we form judgments and opinions, and how our emotions arise uh, out of some mysterious, un- unbidden out of some mysterious space, at that place where we are where we are cognizant of it, where we're tuned into it, at that place it is sometimes possible to stop blaming other people for how we feel. Mm. Stop giving responsibility for our thoughts and feeling states to other people and recognize that we are producing that. Like the story that I told you uh, before about sitting in the zendo and being sure that this creep how in the hell did he get into this monastery in the first place? <laughs> you know, that he was, a, he was about to do this egregious thing. And it didn't have anything to do with him. How I was feeling in that moment of outrage <laughs> had absolutely nothing to do with anybody but me. No, I shouldn't say absolutely nothing. It had to do with everything. It had to do with past experience I had with him, with childhood, with his childhood, with my childhood, with what we had for lunch. You know, it had to do with everything. But there was no point in giving responsibility for my feelings to another person. Well, this brings up, and this may be discussion for another time because we're we're about at the end of our... Uh, Rope. (laughs) (laughs) But it begs the question, I'll just put it out here because it it might be a good place to to pick up another time. What happens when we become more responsible for our feelings? And are there, besides this mindfulness and meditation, other ways of cultivating, taking responsibility for all this stuff that bubbles up in us? And in such a way that we don't let it harm us and those around us so much. Yeah, that's a that's a very good question, and um, I think I think you would need a successful meditator to answer that question. Nah, <laughs> I understand they're hard to come by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not a real deep bench on that, but I wouldn't be in a position of saying that there aren't any. But I I wanted if we have a moment, I, I did want to reflect on back to the beginning. I I said that we often actually almost everybody that I've ever talked to, and certainly me, I, me, I, uh, started meditating in the hopes of getting something, in my case, of of being a better person and that sort of thing. And one of the outcomes of long meditation practice has been uh, that I think, although this is just me talking, (laughs) you'll have to try asking some other people, I think think I'm easier to be around. (laughs) Mm. I think that's one, and uh, but that's as I say, only me talking. <laughs> you should ask my wife. <laughs> no, you know I've had other people say that you're easier to be around too. <laughs> <laughs> oh good, <laughs> oh good. The word is spreading. But uh, the other thing that happened was when I returned from several years of living, in, you know, in uh, temples and doing residential training as a priest and so forth. 
I came back to practice Oriental medicine again, and I was really uh, very concerned about how much I had forgotten. And I was concerned a lot about not remembering, not remembering how to do treatment and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I found was that if I sat in the treatment room uh, in my clinic with a patient, uh, that they would talk to me for a while and they would tell me things. Well, the first thing that happened <clears throat> was a very important realization, which was that the reason that I was anxious, and I was very anxious about this, almost panicked, the reason that I was anxious was that I had the opinion, uh, I had the belief that I was supposed to go and figure it all out and give them treatment, that they would come in with the problem and I would come in with the solution. And uh, wait a minute, one wait of the minute. That's, that's the practice of medicine in the United States. Yeah, so uh, so I, that's the point in re it, which I realized that I was failing at that too, and that what was about to happen was that I was going to come into the room, and they were going to come into the room, and we were we were both going to bring stuff, and that when they brought in their problem, that in some way they would be bringing in the solution with them, and so it became my practice to when I would meet with clients, especially new clients, but really all the time that I would sit with people and let them express themselves in words and actions. And that instead of my starting by knowing what needed to happen, that after I allowed themselves to express themselves in words and action, and sometimes by touching them or, you know, looking at them and touching them, that sort of thing, that, you know, not doing anything, that at some point, some action would emerge. There was something to do, and that it was just my job to do that. And it wasn't that I already knew what to do. I had lots of information. I had lots of knowledge and training and experience. But it wasn't my job to start with knowing what to do. It was my job to permit an appropriate set of actions, words and actions, to arise in the situation and not get in the way of that process. Because most of the time, people bring in not just their problems, but their solutions as well. I think that's a perfect place to end. I thank you so much for the time today and, uh, and for this really poignant reminder, you know, both to me as a practitioner, you know, and I hope for our listeners as well, to recognize that all the troubles that we got, you know, uh, there was something you and I were talking about prior to rolling the tape here that a, uh, what was it I had said? Something about a big front has a big back. Right. Everything has a front and a back. The bigger the front, the bigger the back. Right. So the bigger the problem, maybe the bigger the solution. Yeah. The, the solution will be uh, appropriately proportioned. Thank you, Stuart. Michael, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to having another opportunity before too long to talk to you, and maybe next time even to see you. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week.